This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Nick Ashburn. And I'm Sandy Hunt. And we join you here live every Thursday morning from 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern. We're replayed throughout the week, and you can find us on the SiriusXM app, which I always listen to. I was listening to Hits One on my way to work today. Hits One. <laughs> it's my, it's my, it gets me amped for the day, so that's always exciting. It's a good station. Yeah. Um, we are moving on, moving on. I said it again. I don't know what that means, <laughs> what but uh, just keep it on moving on. Okay, folks. Uh, we are. We don't go- have a good catchphrase here, dollars yeah. and change. So if you, so if you have one, you can shoot us an email, businessradio at siriusxm.com, or shoot us a tweet at bizradio111. You can always give us feedback on my speaking <laughs> techniques. <laughs> See, I'm transparent, blunt. Just do there it. There you go. No worries. Um, but we are moving on to our next guest, who is Leslie Crutchfield, the executive director of Georgetown University's Global Social Enterprise Initiative and author of the new book or forthcoming book, mm-hmm. How Change Happens, Why Some Social Movements Succeed While Others Don't. And, you know, we'll be sure to define what a social mm-hmm. movement is. Sandy, I think you have some specific questions I as well. I do. I'm writing a paper on this right now. Exactly. So it's very timely and we're delighted to have you on the show. Welcome, Leslie Crutchfield. Thank you, Nick, Sandy. Great to be here. Well, we're delighted to have you with us. So, Leslie, let's start very simply and tell us a little bit about your background and how you found yourself um, at Georgetown. Sure. Well, I'm in the McDonough School of Business at Georgetown University, and I serve as the executive director of our Global Social Enterprise Initiative. Um, came to Georgetown a few years ago on a research fellowship to work on this new book, which launches on Monday, April 16th, How Change Happens, Why Some Social Movements Succeed and Others Don't, and uh, really am privileged to be able to work in this space here in the business school that really sits at the intersection of business and society. You know, we at McDonough really believe that business can be a a powerful force for good, We care a lot about how do you create shared value, uh, driving financial, social, and environmental impact all at the same time. And we work with a range of partners, both externally with companies and government agencies and nonprofits, and also work really closely with our students here through courses and through experiential learning opportunities. Well, the the description of your initiative sounds very similar to the Wharton Social Impact Initiative, so I think we are right there with you. We are among friends. Absolutely. So, Leslie, tell us about the book. You know, give us give us the high level summary of the, you know, the the pain point or the piece of information that that wasn't out there in the world that made you say, "I need to put this book out." Well, the book's about movements, and again, why some succeed and others don't. And I will say that it's pretty timely, Mm -hmm. this research, um, something we could not have predicted. But movements matter today, I believe, as much as they ever have. I mean, you see in the headlines the students from Parkland and creating the Never Again and Enough movement. You see Me Too and the changes that business and government entities are making to uh, stand up and really reject harassment and sexual abuse in the workplace. So you see grassroots individuals rising up, speaking out. And these movements have just been emerging in the last few months. Uh, 
the movements that we studied and how change happens through this book at GSEI, at the McDonough School of Business, really focused on the social change campaigns that have tipped in the last few decades. So in our lifetimes, in the last generation, how have we gotten to this point where, for instance, smoking is down to its lowest rates ever, 6% for young people, 15% for adults nationally. This flip in this social norm is the most significant social change to happen in U.S. society and public health in modern history. No social change to have saved more lives or prevented more disease and suffering than the tobacco control movement. So we've seen this enormous flip. We also recently have seen the extension of social justice to LGBT uh, marriage equality, same-sex partners now legally being able to marry in the United States. And during the same time frame, we've seen a remarkable expansion of gun rights, Second Amendment freedoms being extended. You know, today in the U.S., you can openly carry a gun in the majority of U.S. states, as we well know through the activism and debates that have been happening. And private citizens can freely stockpile assault-style weapons. Um, so today, guns are everywhere, just like just a couple decades ago, cigarettes were everywhere. And so what we wanted to know at Georgetown was why? Why have these changes happened? And we had three key findings. Um, first of all, any kind of change seems possible these days. Second, change is nonpartisan. You know, liberals and Democrats win on some counts. Republicans and Tea Partiers win on other counts. And third, and this is the most important insight, change is deliberate. It does not happen by chance. And we got in and mucked around in these movements and really tried to understand why is it some of these causes soared and others seem to really stagnate and struggle. So, Leslie, let's, and maybe this is the first question I should have asked, let's define a social movement. And there are, you know, a few definitions out there. For the purposes of your research, what thresholds did a, you know, did, did a, a, a an initiative need to reach to be considered an official social movement? How do you how do you know it's that organized and synthesized? Well, that's a great question, Sandy. And, and to be more detailed, we didn't actually set out to originally start studying social movements. The original unit of analysis in our research was impact. So we picked a range of social and environmental issues that have tipped, that have seen dramatic population-wide change in the last three decades. So we, we looked at the 1980 through 2016 timeframe. We wanted to understand what does it take to create change in the 21st century, basically. What was so that timeframe again? 1980 to when? 1980 till 2016 when we completed the um, more analytical part of our research. So the living lifetimes of, of, of readers and listeners, you know, to this show. And, and I say that to contrast between movements that had um, come about and emerged, for instance, in the civil rights period, mm -hmm. um, the first Earth Day, the environmental movements. We didn't look at that far back in history. We wanted to understand how do you create change in the modern social, social political, economic context, right? Um, so, so that's one thing. And then we said, okay, how did these changes come about? And more often than not, there was a movement behind it, what we would consider a classic social movement where you have grassroots advocacy, you have protests, you have demonstrations, you have all the things that you classically think of associated with a movement. But we also studied some changes that didn't really require a 
full-on social movement. Let's take global polio eradication. Uh, the U.S. has been a leader in eliminating polio in 99.9% of the world. We're this close to full eradication. Now, this hasn't involved protest marches, but it certainly has evolved, involved many of the strategies and tactics that you see in social movements to dr build the political will and drive the social norm change to get that change to happen. So you talk about change is deliberate, and then you just said they, like, eradicating polio can, ha, has some of those elements. So you, you talked about protests as a possible element, but not necessarily required. Were there any consistent elements that did pop up in successful social movements? Absolutely. Um, we found six practices across all of the successful movements that were common. And those same six uh, practices were less common or absent in movements that have been less effective. Um, so let me give you an example. Um, we one, we'd one, love to hear all six, if you can sure, summarize them briefly. About, yeah, we could talk about all six. The, the first factor in the book, the first chapter in the book is called Turn Grassroots Gold. And this was um, really remarkable as we looked at everything from gun rights to LGBT, marriage equality to the tobacco control, to polio and drunk driving reduction, all of these changes which have happened in the last few decades in our country. Um, we saw that the winning movements nurture and grow their grassroots. They deliberately invest and systematically expand their grassroots. And the flip side is the movements that have been struggling have not been as strong on the grassroots. Now, let's take, for instance, uh, the headlines today are all focused on Never Again and the students coming out of Parkland in the, way, in the wake of that terrible tragedy on February 14th um, at Marjorie Douglas Stoneman High School. Um, historically, when you really get into the research, the gun control movement has been relatively small um, compared to the gun rights movement. So all the way up until Sandy Hook and that massacre, which, which happened in 2012, the largest gun control groups had only reached about 400,000 members, whereas the NRA had already built up its membership to nearly 5 million. So at the time of the Sandy Hook school shooting, you only had, a, on the gun control side, a tenth the side of volume and intensity. Now, of course, this doesn't become apparent in the media because the media is covering kind of both sides equally, right? After Sandy Hook, you saw the advent of Every Town for Gun Safety, a new gun safety group on the scene. And since 2014, every town has grown its grassroots to more than 4 million members or supporters. And then I'd say after Parkland, I'm sure with the additional um, fuel that they're adding to that fire, uh, the gun control side is probably well on its way to meeting, if not surpassing the NRA in terms of membership. But it's only been in the last 36 months that you've seen an equal and opposite grassroots force that's speaking out and activating, mobilizing against the gun rights movement. So that's, that's one insight. Um, of the six insights from the book that I think are most interesting to your listeners on this business radio program are these two. Um, one factor we call break from business as usual. And we spent a lot of time really studying the role of business in all of these different social movements and had some really counterintuitive findings. Um, you know, typically you think of, you know, business as the enemy, uh, social activists rising up against corporate wrongdoing. But in fact, 
we found that businesses were the playing field where a lot of these changes started to play out. Now, certainly, again, on the gun issue, we're seeing that in the headlines today with businesses like Walmart and Dick's Sporting mm-hmm. Goods, you know, voluntarily deciding to raise the age of gun sale purchases and also um, – Bank of America uh, deciding not to finance mm-hmm. some of those manufacturers, too. Absolutely. They won't make loans, and Bank of America is the founding partner uh, here at GSCI. They've long been involved in causes ranging from this to climate and, and gender and diversity equity, among others. Um, so you see businesses uh, in, in the gun de- debate, and that's something that's changed. You've seen business leaders um, standing out, taking stands. The most important thing that I think people should take away from the role of business is that when companies change their policies, this often paves the way to more democratic action. So let me give you an example from the research for how change happens. You know, we looked at the movement for LGBT marriage equality, so same-sex partners could um, have full and equal rights to heterosexual partners in terms of marriage. Highly controversial issue, um, lots of activism. You know, and the media pundits like to credit the will and grace effect to why this big change came about. Well, in fact, when you look at the activism of LGBT advocates back as early as the 70s, they were working, for instance, in the state of California to get policies changed so that first government organizations, then business, could recognize same-sex partners on health benefit packages so that in California – By the 2000s, by the time the California Supreme Court was getting ready to lift the ban it had instituted on gay marriage, 80% of the people working in the state of California across finance, entertainment, tech, already were getting benefits uh, extended to same-sex partners. So the norm had shifted because business had made this policy shift. You also saw the role of business uh, heavily playing in the tobacco control. Now, of course, the tobacco industry was on the opposite end of the activism, but it was the airline industry, workers, uh, pilots, stewardesses, the workers in airlines that first stood up to ban smoking on flights. That was the first uh, kind of public-facing place where you had a smoking ban. Later, bars and restaurant workers came on board, and then you saw the public smoking ban. So, so business, by changing its policies, can have a dramatic effect both on shifting social norms and ultimately paying the, paving the way for more democratic action. Okay, and the second one that you thought would be particular was it was it grassroots and break from business as usual, or was there another one that you thought was particularly pertinent to the business listenership of this show? Sure, the, another insight: change hearts and policy. This was a big one, and again, kind of counterintuitive. You know, by default, when you look at movements, you think of, you know, demonstrations, protests, advocating for and lobbying for policy change. But the winning movements didn't just do that. They deliberately and systematically set out to change hearts and shift public opinion, right? You've got to win in the court of public opinion as well as in, you know, state houses and in legal court cases. And what did you see with regards to the order? Was it that public opinion and changing hearts needs to precede success on the policy side or just that they both need to happen at some point? Well, that's a good chicken and the egg question, Sandy. And I, I, you know, I would say it has to happen simultaneously. So, um, you know, with 
let's take LGBT marriage. You know, a big shift in momentum for that uh, movement came about 15 years ago. Um, They were really on the ropes. President Clinton had signed DOMA. It was going to define marriage as exclusively between heterosexual couples. Thirteen states had ballot referendums on the way to ban gay marriage. And, you know, society was not it was not looking inevitable at that point that you would have marriage equality. It was looking impossible in the U.S. And an insight came to um, the activists that were part of the marriage equality movement, including Freedom to Marry, um, ACLU, GLAD, Lambda, and a number of other uh, groups that were working on this for decades. And they said, you know, they did some polling, classic, you know, polling techniques, consumer market research to figure out, okay, where are people in this country on gay marriage? And uh, they asked uh, respondents to a survey, okay, why do you get married? Um, And for the majority heterosexual couples, well, you know, we get married because we love each other. We are committed to, uh, we want to be united in the eyes of God. We want to, you know, have a lifelong commitment. And they said, well, why do you think a homosexual couple wants to get married? And to be honest, back in the early 2000s, the answer was most commonly, I don't know. And then maybe to be able to visit their partners in the hospital, you know, legal benefits. And that's when the aha moment came for the gay marriage advocates. You know, they didn't want marriage for the benefits, right? They wanted marriage because they're in love. They love their partner and do all the things that straight couples do. So then they shifted their focus of the entire campaign from rights and discrimination to love. And that changed everything because then the message they brought couples that had been um, not politically active into the forefront, showing you know pictures and talking about the kids they were raising, using that kind of mouth, uh, person-to-person um, advocacy, and then also showcasing couples in love and making that the focus. And then you know it became very hard even for you know, members of the Catholic Church, the conservative uh, movement that was against gay marriage, led by political leaders like Mitt Romney, the then Republican candidate for president. And um, they, it was very hard to be against love. So that's that's one example. I would say, you know, in this uh, day and age, um, certainly smoking, tapping into changing hearts, you know, it wasn't just about passing taxes so that cigarettes were too expensive for young people to start smoking. They needed to make smoking uncool because tobacco control activists realized that the ultimate enemy here wasn't just tobacco companies. It was the Marlboro Man. It was Joe Camel. You know, there were studies done a couple decades ago where among young people, Joe Camel was more recognized as a brand than Santa Claus in some communities. And it's a fact. So, they, they, you know, you're up against these huge brands, these iconic images. And so, you know, in the tobacco control movement, they had to fight fire with fire. So you saw Truth Initiative coming out with these very savvy advertising and social media campaigns um, that really tapped into the psychographics of young people. You know, from, from my generation, I'm a Gen Xer, it was all about we're rebellious. So they came out with body bags and, you know, if you really want to be rebellious, rebel against these corporate suits at Philip Morris that are trying to get you hooked mm-hmm. on this lethal thing. You know, now um, millennials and next gen um, members of the next generation care a lot about social justice. They're not as rebellious. They care a lot about social justice. So you see the truth campaign ads on YouTube around Cat McGinnon. So they've got, you know, 
silly cat, stupid pet videos. And the punchline is very creative. It's, you know, cancer, uh, excuse me, smoking and secondhand smoke causes cancer in pets, just like it does in humans. So if you smoke, no pets, no stupid pet videos on YouTube. You know, and they get at these heartstrings, what young people really care about. Because if it's a bunch of adults saying, don't smoke, it's bad for you, that's a surefire way to get a teen to do something. So you've got to be more creative and savvy in your approach. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, and we're speaking with Leslie Crutchfield, who's the executive director of Georgetown University's Global Social Enterprise Initiative, and we're really talking about the book, How Change Happens, Why Some Social Movements Succeed While Others Don't. And I I'm wanted to follow up on some of these trends, which to me... I love that, you know, the data can support these. They they make a ton of sense. The turn grassroots gold, break um, break from business as usual, chains hearts and policy. Lots That makes a lot of sense. And then when you tackle that across the time period of 1980 to about 2016, we obviously had different forms of media pop up. Um, you know, we're not just talking about traditional advertising or articles in the newspaper or on uh, certain networks. I mean, even the rise of cable TV happened over that time period. So how did media or does that really have a role in successful movements? Absolutely. Um, the rise of social media, the ubiquity of the Internet, the diversification of channels. You know, now we can tune into CNN, MSNBC and Fox, right, and get totally different reporting on the same issues um, from different angles. So what I have to say about the impact of media is every movement has access to this. Now, the winning movements have figured out how to tap into it, um, but it doesn't necessarily favor one side or the other, liberal causes versus conservative causes. In mm -hmm. fact, you know, one of the most savvy uh, groups to leverage the power of social media is the NRA. You know, they have a an array of commercials. They have NRA TV. They're all over YouTube um, with ads promoting gun rights and Second Amendment freedoms, inviting you to join the NRA and join the movement, right? So, so both sides and all sides can tap into this. I think the difference with social media is that it accelerates the pace of change mm -hmm. and it gives the opportunity to go instantly viral. And every individual can talk to everybody at any moment, right? Um, because of the power of networked uh, telecommunications. So, and and Leslie, and, actually, on that, on the, on the social media side, if you think about turning grassroots gold, that that first principle that you talked about, is is that is there a tipping point? Is there a nuance there between like we need to be face to face in communities versus like the democratization and the messaging across your network, your social networks? How does that? Did, do you have any insights between those two? Yes, we write about this in the book extensively, but just at a high level. You know, social media is great for creating what Malcolm Gladwell, the author of Tipping Point, calls, you know, weak tie phenomena, right? Mm -hmm. like, you know, on social media, we can friend each other, we can support each other's, you know, causes, make a donation. But when it comes to action, when it comes to what really drives change, that all happens offline because it happens in the voting booth. It happens in town hall meetings. You know, you, you've got to show up. We, in this country, for instance, last summer, you saw a Republican-led Congress and White House repeatedly try to repeal Obamacare. Why wasn't that law repealed under those circumstances? Because you saw out in the congressional districts thousands of activists and community members saying, please don't take away affordable health care uh, 
in very angry and loud tones, right? So, so those offline, on the ground um, advocacy is what actually is going to drive change in the end. Now, social media helps connect people. You know, when, when Shannon Watts was creating Moms Demand Action in the wake of Sandy Hook, a gun control group, um, horrified by the Sandy Hook shooting massacre, you know, she went and started a Facebook page because she looked online, to, wanted to join a MAD, like a Mothers Against Drunk Driving But for Gun Control, and she couldn't find anything. So she started a Facebook page, and that's how every town has now grown to more than 4 million supporters in a matter of a couple of years. Now, that would not have been possible, you know, back, for instance, back in 1999, right after the Columbine massacre. Yeah. So let's. I'm trying to make all of your fabulous knowledge actionable for our listeners. And I think one of the questions I face as a member of this millennial group and in a world where you can have all these soft ties, as you referenced, is understanding if certain actions matter. So, for example, we talk a lot on this show about, you know, do things like the ice bucket challenge or, you know, these viral campaigns where you're just you're you're hashtagging something, you're posting on the internet, but you're maybe not giving, volunteering, taking action outside of that social media action. Do those matter? Does that amount to anything? And so I'm curious what your research would suggest. Is it yes, do those things and and then that additional action is necessary, or is there power just in the in the, you know, online advocacy? Well, Sandy, I'd say that they're necessary but not sufficient to drive change, right? So they, of course, movements, demonstrations, protests matter. They build momentum. Uh, One thing that really matters about them is not necessarily that an immediate policy outcome comes. You know, you're not seeing, for instance, in the wake of the March for Our Lives um, last month from the students from Parkland leading to any major national federal legislation. However, what it does is build unity and that strong tie connection between members of a movement. And this, again, goes back to this grassroots. The, the really savvy movements put a lot into ve- to developing those relationships and networks among their grassroots memberships. It's victims and survivors support groups you know, um, that you see that kind of fosters that kind of approach. Then you've got people connected and energized then you tap into them so that when it comes time to vote, when it comes time to show up at a town council meeting and raise your voice. Um, and that's where the second part really matters. So, you know, historically in the gun issue, for instance, when a town council uh, meeting was happening and there was a resolution related to guns, historically it really was only 40 guys uh, from the NRA showing up demanding that the Second Amendment be respected. But there wasn't 40 women in, you know, red t-shirts from Moms Demand Action voicing the other side. Now you've got all sides represented and it has to be in person. So the, the, the big demonstrations build momentum, but then it's the offline action that you got to follow through on to get the change in the end. And Leslie, um, as we sort of think about wrapping up this segment, I'm curious around, um, you've, you've mentioned sort of these organizing groups, whether that's GLAAD and the HRC and others in, you know, the LGBT movement, um, the NRA or Every Town for Gun Safety and Guns. Smoking for me, I, maybe I just am ignorant and don't really know what sort of the organizing principle was in that. But what, what are the dynamics and pros and cons around grassroots and, you know, these more or, larger organizing groups? Well, first, the 
you're talking about uh, kind I, of the grassroots and the yeah the role top. like how do you like yes. I think you know organizing groups can be beneficial but I don't know how exactly. So the organizing groups in these movements that you're talking about, the winning groups employed what we call a networked leadership approach. So with tobacco control, for instance, the campaign for tobacco-free kids founded in the mid-1990s really drove a lot of the modern changes we've seen around smoking. Now, this was a coalition that included American Cancer, American Heart, American Lung, right? So they had these big membership health organizations and their grassroots that were part of the coalition. They also had other grassroots groups like Americans for Non-Smokers Rights out there. And the idea is that these networked leadership groups see their role as kind of a conductor of an orchestra. And, and this gets into this concept, the last chapter in the book around leaderful movements, right? The, the best movements strike this balance between on the one extreme to the far left being too leaderless and on the other extreme on the far right being too leader-led or top-down. So, you know, if you look at the far left, leaderless movements that are just kind of chaotic and it's a lot of demonstrating, but there's really no specific uh, policy action. An example of that in recent memory is Occupy Wall Street, right? Like a lot of protests, a lot of disruption down in the park in uh, Manhattan. But not a lot of policy outcomes. Mm -hmm. On the far right, you've got movements that are too leader-led. You have grass tops leaders here in D.C. trying to dictate what happens on a high, you know, kind of a traditional leadership approach we associate with corporations, right, a command and control, whereas leader-full movements, it's all about pushing power out to state and local levels. So, for instance, um, let's talk about the NRA. Of course, that's one monolithic organization, but they talk about their structure as an upside-down pyramid where their 5 million members are on the top of the pyramid, and at the very bottom is just the lobbyists and the staff here in the building in Fairfax, just outside the Beltway in Washington, D.C., where I sit here at Georgetown University. So, you know, the, the spirit is how do you push power and authority out to local and state leaders to drive change rather than, um, and also not try and dictate everything from on high from one dominant group. And that's the difference between the systems leader, we talk about that a lot today um, in the social sector, versus a kind of a traditional command and control corporate type leader. Well, I think that makes a lot of sense. I look forward to reading the book. I'm sure Me Sandy too. does, too. Um, we've been speaking with Leslie Crutchfield, executive director of Georgetown University's Global Social Enterprise Initiative and the author of the forthcoming book, How Change Happens, Why Some Social Movements Succeed While Others Don't. We are going to take a short break, but definitely stick with us because you are going to want to stick around for our next guest, Bobby Turner, uh, Chief Executive Officer and Founder of Turner Impact Capital. This is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 